Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Annabelle Collins and I'm joined by Nick Carding and James Illman. This week we'll be discussing the latest in the ongoing race to win the sought-after contract for the NHS's new federated data platform and of course some of the runners and riders. Also this week, how has the NHS coped during the four-day-long junior doctor strike and a quick update on the latest NHS performance data, which has for the first time revealed the extent of the 12-hour wait in A&E from the time of arrival. More on that later from James. But first, let's talk about the data platform bidding war. Nick, I think a bit of a quick bit of context would be helpful. Could you remind me and listeners what the feder- what the federated platform is? and why the contract for it is so important. Yeah, so I would say this is currently the most high profile procurement being uh, run by the NHS at the moment. Uh, NHS England are procuring uh, what they call federated data platform, um, which is a bit of a kind of new thing for the NHS to be buying. Um, It's a continuation slash expansion of the COVID-19 data store, uh, which listeners may have heard of. Um, And basically what it does, uh, or what it will do rather, is it will supposedly improve the way data uh, flows across the NHS locally, regionally, nationally, you know, from trusts, ICSs um, and the national teams. Um, And it is hoped that that will help manage the the pressures uh, at the moment much better um you know everything from predicting a and e uh attendance to speeding up discharges at the other end of the the hospital so that's kind of what it's trying to do and so you've had um a story on the kind of development i suppose of the bidding war for this contract this week um what was that about yeah so what we've reported this week um is uh, so obviously the the procurement's ongoing the bids have been submitted um the procurement is split into different stages um and what we're reporting this week is that uh one of the more sort of high profile bidders uh has been knocked out or has not actually made it through to the next stage of the competition um the reason i call them high profile is because they're one of uh, very few bidders that have actually confirmed that they are bidding so a lot of companies are sort of rumored to be bidding very few companies have said we are actually bidding um the companies in question um they had a big feature in the financial times uh in february where they sort of announced uh, that they were going to to take on um palantir which is the incumbent supplier and uh, as listeners are probably aware sort of slightly controversial firm uh, in the eyes of campaigners um, certainly um the company uh, that i'm talking about they are actually a consortium of three british companies they kind of built themselves up to be this british alternative to uh, the big american tech companies that are thought to be bidding for for the federated federated aid platform and so I think that you know there was a bit of optimism that they could bring something different to uh, to the to the federated edge platform, but um, as we reveal in the story, it turns out they've actually not made it past the first stage of the competition. So it's a rather disappointing uh, and abrupt end to their hopes of uh, of getting this contract. And so, who are who? 
who is part of this consortium? Are yeah. they um, companies that have existing relationships with the NHS at all? Yes, they, they do. So it's basically three companies. Uh, the names are Voror Healthcare, um, Eclipse and Black Pair. And Voror Healthcare um, says it has contracts with a couple of ICBs for sort of data analytics services. Um, Black Pair also, I think, has some contracts with the NHS for similar sort of data data services. Uh, I'm not too aware of Eclipse exactly uh, what what they do with the NHS, but I think they all did mm. say that they have, you know, some experience. And a big part of what they were saying in their offer, if you like, um, was that they could deliver this data platform in a much cheaper uh, way so it wouldn't be costing mm -hmm. NHS England so much money um the, the sort of the, the value of the contract is estimated to be up to 480 million pounds over seven years um which has raised a lot of eyebrows locally I think in the NHS and from um sort of interested parties outside the NHS they say this is very it, it comes across very expensive um and so this company this consortium was saying well actually we think we can deliver this at a fraction of the price um, and they, I think they were keen to kind of plug that they were a, a British, you know, British consortium. Often these tech contracts do end up going to the big global firms. Um, and there's obviously this kind of perception sometimes that the NHS relies too heavily on on the big tech firms who then kind of monopolise the the market, and it's not always best value for the NHS. So, you know, that's what that's what they were hoping to bring, but they have mm. now uh, been knocked out. And do you I mean, get that, a sense? Oh, sorry, James. Sorry, no, I was, I, I was just going to say that 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 perception isn't isn't without some evidence behind it. I mean, the you know, the uh, mm. if if you look around the NHS and uh, who who wins all the big contracts, it does tend to be the big tech firms. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Anything from electronic patient records to electronic document management. A, a lot of the the big contracts do go to. To the big firms and and I, it's very difficult you know as a observer of all this to really judge who is likely to make the most kind of value for money offer you know obviously the global mm -hmm. tech firms are big for a reason i.e they probably have a lot of expertise but obviously you don't want to kind of stifle the innovative uh you know ways of working that some of these uh, smaller companies can offer so it's um yeah it's it's sort of a, a tricky one to to decide and I guess only NHS England will really know exactly what the quality of what this uh, consortium was offering compared to some of those other big firms that are said to be involved. Is it unusual for companies to club together in this way um, when bidding for a big contract like this? Um, so this contract is so it's quite unusual for the NHS to be procuring, as I said at the start. So it's a little bit hard to compare. Um, I think. It's it's maybe a little bit surprising that so many of the bids appear to be consortiums. So I, I get the impression from, again, this is sort of speaking to people off record who are involved, um, you know, kind of gossiping about who's 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 involved. A lot of the bidders seem to be consortiums. I don't think there are many single supplier bids. Um, it felt a bit in the procurement documents to NHS England actually encouraged consortiums because I think it is a complex sort of technology which the NHS is procuring which has different elements within and I think the thinking is that you know it would be a 
be slightly unlikely maybe for just one tech company to be able to have all the supplier in all the different areas that are going to be needed. And so that's why consortium bids are, are probably more uh, likely to be fruitful in this procurement than for most other um, NHS procurements. And you've alluded to it a bit already, but do you know why this failed or is it something that's kept under wraps? No. Um, we approached the consortium and NHS England to ask them why the, the, the why that consortium didn't make it through um they neither of them responded um to that question so mm. um we haven't been able to ascertain exactly why um mm. why it was we do know um you know a few of the other bidders again from speaking to people um i think i do get the impression it's it's the big companies that are making it through to the next phase um so you know whether turnover has anything to say in sort of energy england's confidence of a company's ability to deliver this kind of technology may have been a factor but i don't i wouldn't be able to say that for absolutely certain and you mentioned one of the big companies um by name already but who who else is um you know, still in this contest. contest yes. Nick. So this is the other element of the story um, that we're reporting. And I think um, I think with this story, we're sort of revealing to, to listeners, yeah. hopefully, um, the sort of extent of the number of bidders, because there have been sort of rumours and hearsay quite a lot. No one's really managed to pull together a comprehensive list. Um, and I'm not saying our list is 100% comprehensive because I'm sure there are other bidders that we aren't aware of, but we've managed to unearth a few names who we are sort of safely reporting as bidding, even though they haven't actually said so themselves. Mm-hmm. So the I suppose to start off with the obvious one is Palantir, uh, which who I have spoken about before on this podcast, incumbent supplier. They are not the choice that many sort of privacy campaigners would like Energy England to make because Palantir have a background of working for the, for example, the CIA with surveillance technology, um, so-called spyware, as it's been dubbed by campaigners. They're backed by, or they were founded by Peter Thiel, who is a prominent Trump, Donald Trump supporter. Um, So Palantir, not sort of perhaps the the people's choice or the the campaigner's choice rather Um, but obviously they are the incumbent supplier and that's partly why they are supposedly among the front runners if you believe what other media have reported. Um, They are believed to have partnered with Accenture which is a big global consultancy Um, and then other bidders so the only other company which has said that it's bidding um actually there are two companies that have announced they're bidding the first is one called quantexa which is actually another british company they have a background in the sort of financial data um analytics uh, and services uh, sector so they they come from sort of more of a banking industry they announced last year they would bid and then the third company which we know have bid um, and have made it through, I believe, is an Ameri- another American tech firm new to the NHS. They're called C3 AI, and they are um, sort of uh, quite a big American tech firm whose clients range from the US Air Force, uh, Shell, 
the uh, the oil company so they have experience from a few different sectors um, and they I suppose unusually in this case they actually were the only company that yeah that responded to us and actually gave us an interview about why they thought they should win the the contract so um, so it would be interesting to follow follow their their fortunes as well and then I can just mention quickly a few other names that are involved so mm-hmm. um, you think Oracle Cerner which is a big uh, electronic patient record and, and sort of data infrastructure company uh, are bidding. Um, there are some consultancies that are part of the consortiums. So um, PwC, McKinsey and EY all thought to be in there. In fact, EY are partnering with C3AI. Um, and then we're also, although I haven't been able to 100% ascertain this, but the sort of the, the big, um, well, I think there's an acceptance that we think companies like Databricks and Salesforce, again, two big American sort of tech firms are also thought to be um, bidding or part of the consortiums, as well as Microsoft and Amazon Web Services. So those are the names that we've managed to kind of, that have cropped up, I suppose is the mm. best way of saying it, cropped up repeatedly in conversations with 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 people from NHS England and outside NHS England. It's interesting, the uh, the interest in American com- the American companies seem to be having in this particular contract. I wonder what you think about that, Nick. Do you think it's just because of the size of this opportunity, or is that part of a wider trend? Do you think? I think it's um, it is an interesting point, and I think it sort of partly is the high-profile nature and size of the contract. There's certainly you know an element of why some of these big US tech firms are interested. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking about the sort of US tech firms that are currently being used in the NHS. They're mainly in, I think, the electronic patient record market um, and you know a few other sort of digital services, but mainly the EPR, uh, the EPR market. So in terms of like sort of the, the data market, data analytics, um, I think it's, you know, it's a bit newer that some of these big global firms are taking an interest. I think the reason that they're so keen to get this contract is because this really is going to be, you know, NHS England's kind of flagship data project for the next four or five and maybe more years. And so the supplier is going to have a great opportunity to really demonstrate their um, ability in you know, taking something as complex as the NHS and all the data and the different data sources and structures that the NHS has, you know, and being a huge organisation, being able to kind of um, produce this kind of platform to, you know, help the NHS make make itself much more efficient as a result, that's going to be a really big prestigious thing ultimately for, for any company to be able to say, you know, if, if you've got, you know, a company that can say, yeah, we went into the English NHS and we sorted out their data problems and now it's much more efficient, that's going to be a big, big, uh, you know, accolade for that company to be able to to say so I think it's, it's a prestigious contract um, which I think is why some of these big big firms are taking quite keen interest. And uh, if, you, if you were to, to sort of name a favour at this point <laughs> maybe that's a bit of a tricky thing to ask is there anyone is there anyone you've got your eye on Nick? Yeah <laughs> I mean we will be coming back to you once we know. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I actually find that a really hard question um, because at the end of the day, I don't know the ins and outs of what all these different companies are going to be able to offer. Um, a lot of people think that Palantir are the foregone conclusion and, you know, they think they're the incumbent supplier. Palantir have hired a few NHS England chiefs lately or in the last year or so, you know, it's all kind of set up for them to win it. I actually don't buy into that. And I do think... I do think Palantir actually have quite a hard job to, to win this um, because um, not only is there that kind of, it's a bit of a, they come with baggage, I think, for, you know, any Secretary of State uh, to kind of approve of and England to approve of, whether they like it or not, there is sort of political and public um issues that some of the other bidders probably don't have and make the other bidders a bit more attractive. Now, obviously, that shouldn't have anything really to say in a, in a fair and open procurement. Um, but, you know, everyone you know, at the end of the day, we're all human. Um, so I think Palantir have got quite a lot, quite their work got cut out, basically. Um, there's also this thing about the price. So Palantir, some people have suggested that there will be other companies that can do this cheaper than what Palantir have done for the COVID data store, um, judged on the value of the contract for the COVID data store. Which company that is, I, I don't really know. Um, but if I'm going to bet on one thing, I, I will I will bet that Palantir won't win the contract, as I think I may have actually done in the New Year's resolutions or New Year's predictions podcast. I think, a couple yeah, of I think you so did. I'm actually just repeating myself, which is very boring. But that that is the only prediction I'm willing to make at this point. I think it's a sign of confidence, Nick. That's fine. <laughs> um, and just just before we move on, finally, when is this all going to be wrapped up? Do you have an idea of that? Yeah, so at the moment, the procurement is in what's called the competitive dialogue phase, which is, as I understand it, where the supplier, the bidders that have made it through work kind of with Energy England to show what they can do to help kind of polish the final specification, if you like, for what's going to be needed. Uh, there's probably a better way of explaining it than what I have done there, but that's broadly as I understand it. And then there'll be, that's going to be concluded later this spring. And then over summer, it will be the final bids going in. Um, and then decision in, I believe, I think it's September, England, end of September. So we should hopefully know the winner by September or October. That said, this is a complex procurement. It's already been delayed. The launch was already delayed by several months. I would not be surprised if there are more delays um, caused by various things. So we may actually might go into kind of late, late this year or even early next year. But the aim, I think, is September. But as I say, I think it's likely to maybe be delayed a little bit after that. All right. Thanks very much, Nick. Can I just add that when I say I bet on Palantir not winning, it's no reflection of um, my kind of understanding of how their tech works or anything. It's it's just a, a gut feeling. A personal, a personal observation. Personal observation. Thank you. Duly noted. Thanks, Nick. Um, I think let's now move on to junior doctor strikes, um, which are in full swing. We're, we're recording on Thursday, so day three of four days of strike action. And we've all been trying to talk to people about what's going on this week. And, and James, um, I think a good point to start would be the story that you wrote, actually, on some what a first first of all appeared to be derogations 
in uh, Western Hospital in Somerset, which was then swiftly with, withdrawn. Yeah. Um, perhaps we could chat about this a bit and then we'll just sort of talk more generally about the strikes. We certainly can. Uh, yeah, a bit of a, a debacle, a Western pickle. Um, so... <laughs> Just to step back a minute, because obviously, so we know that the junior doctors on strike, as you said, four days, day three, uh, we know that loads of um, uh, elective work has been blanket cancellations all over the place of elective work and, you know, some pretty urgent work as well. Um, but um, so NHS England sort of predicting around 350,000 appointments could be cancelled, which... Um, is a lot more than previous strikes and we know that around 48,000 junior doctors have are, are on on the strike the backbone of the NHS is medical provision etc etc so one of the biggest concerns that the NHS had in all of this uh is is that emergency care would fall over as well uh and that um yeah you, you might have to shut an A&E which which would be a kind of nuclear option and the way of kind of getting around this nuclear option is to have derogations, which um, we were in our in our pre-pod chat were discussing what an ugly word derogation is. But basically, it's just a, a relaxation of a rule. So in this case, a strike. So the uh, uh, the idea would be that um, the trust uh, says to uh, the uh, BMA, uh, actually, we we can't fill. Uh, the rotors and there's going to be a, um, a risk to patient safety and uh, the junior doctors duly then fill in which was appearing to be what was going to happen on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday sometime sort of around five o'clock or something the BMA tweeted out that they were going to um, uh, they agreed to a derogation um, to cover emergency department and acute medicine at Western General Hospital. Now, Western General Hospital is one of the smallest in the NHS. Uh, it's run by university hospitals, Bristol and Western. Um, and it's an it's a emergency department, which for a long time, um, sort of system leaders have been talking about whether it, it should be a a full type one emergency department or it should be downgraded, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a small department. And it's these small departments that have been the most vulnerable to um, to, to some kind of problem covering rotors because at the bigger departments, there's, there's generally a, a, a wider pool of consultants to draw down on. So uh, yeah, so it, it was agreed to, well, announced that they were agreeing this derogation. And then on Wednesday lunchtime, so under 24 hours later, uh, the BMA um, sent out um, a fairly uh, robustly worded tweet uh, accusing the trust of abusing the strike agreement and saying that it had revoked the derogation. Uh, we reported this, went out in our lunchtime newsletter, uh, Q Fury at the trust. Uh, they said that uh, this 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 wasn't the case and that they had agreed the derogations in good faith at an earlier stage uh, as a precaution and that the uh, the trusts said that you, you know during its it, its planning it thought it might not be to cover the rotors uh, and it would require a derogation however ultimately uh, so far and again we're not we're not through the strike yet uh, it had not needed to draw down on on any of the derogations so uh, 
and it also the, the BMA accused the trust of not only misleading it but misleading NHS England too. Now uh, to confirm, NHS England uh, issued a statement saying we we weren't misled by the trust, but mm. you know <laughs> the 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 ins and outs in a way are sort of academic. It's just it's it's another example of how a really tense situation has become intensified by um yeah by by events really and 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 then you had a lot of bad feeling and that bad feeling spreads very quickly and that distrust spreads very quickly so um you know if there were various trust leaders who were saying off the record um that they were now worried that if they needed to apply for um uh, a derogation that it might be harder to agree because of what had happened in Western and and, and all this mistrust. Mm. So it, it's not just an event that is impacting one organization and one trust and, and one group of junior doctors. It it's become a national problem. I mean it's our most read story on the website at the moment and mm. uh, there's a lot of discussion about it. So it's you know it, it's poisoned the well a bit. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to sum it up, actually. I think also it kind of shows how fragile these local relationships are. And um, I'm sure you've both been having conversations with people, um, you know, in various different bits of England. But it seems that, um, I don't know, it's just tr- organising it this time around just seemed so much more stressful and trying to... Um, ensure there was enough consultant cover and consultants feeling tired and it coming after Easter as well was obviously really bad timing I think it's yeah I can see how relationships are getting a bit frayed um yeah lots of people on on holiday some people cancelling their holiday to come back some people refusing to cancel their holiday mm, and then you've got mm. this whole BMA rate card issue as well which has been incredibly divisive and again driving a wedge between NHS managers and clinicians and and that relationship between NHS managers and clinicians is is delicate in in peacetime so at the moment it's especially delicate and anything that sort of further threatens to derail that in any way is 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 really a bad thing um and a, a very bad thing for patients I have to say when I read your story James I did feel like I mean I, I and I obviously don't know the ins and outs but it felt a little bit like the BMA may have overreacted a bit when they put out that initial statement, because if both the trust and NHS England were saying that it was a justified request for, you know, uh, these doctors to be taken off the picket line at the time, then that seems fair enough that that could change if then more people turned up for work than the trust had thought. It just, it seemed, when I read your piece, I just thought, based on what the information is out there, it seems like it was safer for the trust to you know they took the decision to ask for that in in the interest of patient safety and did the BMA really need to kind of go so public about what's happened if it was a misunderstanding then they surely you know I don't know really if anyone looks good after this really no one no no I mean I mean I I'm not sure I buy that entirely I feel that uh, something has gone wrong somewhere uh very much so and you know we don't know the discussions that have been going on behind and we've just reported it very straight there's 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 been a lot of kind of commentary around it from various people briefing off the record on both sides but all we know uh is it's a right pickle 
and it's a situation which definitely has wider Im Im implications but um it's it's very hard to to say who's right and who's wrong because it's a it's a kind of classic they said they said um so hard to yeah draw any any sort of conclusions at this stage mm. um and i think as well just to, something about the impact of this we've um as i said we've been talking to various people but so far I, i'm hearing that people are, are coping okay and that um i think someone said that tuesday was scarily quiet for the day after a bank holiday long bank holiday weekend so people obviously keep maybe keeping away from any which is concerning yeah. in its own right because people are going to turn up later much sicker and then of course there's the elective impact uh, well not just the elective impact you know cancer elective whatever out, outpatient impact which is yet to be seen and you know some of the harm of that is very very hard to measure um and, you know, we'll see on Friday afternoon when NHS England released the data on cancellations. I mean, the Sunday Times had a leak which said it was, you know, I think it was around 350,000 was what NHS England is, is predicting. Yeah, yeah, 350,000 is, is the predicted number. I'm not, I'm not sure when well, well, they will be on Friday now because obviously the strike goes on, doesn't it, until Saturday a.m. But That is um, true. Yeah, maybe. That is true. Maybe maybe Friday night can be salvaged this time, but we'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think, again, stepping back, this is, has been a disastrous week for the NHS and it's been an awful week for patients and the mm. repercussions of this will be, uh, will go on for a long time. But has it been as bad so far as it could have been? No, mm. obviously there's still there is still time for for things to go wrong. But generally speaking, when I've spoken to yeah people out on my patch, which is around the mm. east of England, there's been a sense that the consultants have really stepped up. And yes, there were all sorts of flaps and panics last week trying to fill rotors, but people are just about holding it together. So even though they've they've had to cancel a lot of elective work, they haven't had to draw down on a derogation or close an A&E or mm. do any of those awful sort of nuclear options. Um, but that's still, yeah, I think it's really important to remember that these cancellations will have a patient care cost uh, and a very serious one. Um, and um, it, it's, it's all doing a lot of harm to patients. So although it's not as bad as it could have been, uh, mm. still a, a, a desperately bad week. Absolutely. feels like feels like we say that about every strike which has been in the last four or five months really which I guess is like good that the NHS has managed to mitigate what could be such severe impacts like what James was saying you, like it feels like every strike it's actually been it's not been a disaster it's not been some huge incident that has sort of you know kind of caught everyone's eye it has seems to have been managed They've just, you know, just about managed through it. Um, but then, as James says, there is a big toll at the end of it, of course. But yeah, it's good, I think it's good. It's good there hasn't been like a big, disastrous, eye-catching incident that perhaps people thought mm. there would be. You know, you can go back to the, the nursing and the ambulance strikes a few months ago. It all seems to have passed without any hugely dramatic kind of one big scary incident. But that's, I, I guess, that's the problem in a way. Is is a lot of the harm we can't see. Mm. Uh, it's it, it's like an iceberg. There's loads of harm going on beneath the waterline as people wait longer, as people don't get seen, as ambulances don't turn up. 
and it's all sort of chipping away at an already very fragile system. So no, there definitely hasn't been one big bang moment. And you know, for that, uh, the NHS is can be very grateful for. But the, the the kind of underlying harm of all of this is almost at this point unquantifiable, mm. uh, which yeah, is really yeah. scary. And there's been, you know, even before this, we go back to uh, the patients that stayed away during COVID, what's happened to all of them. Uh, mm. And there's all this uh, unquantified harm out in the country at the moment and uh, people not coming in. And I remember speaking to one very senior um, NHS figure who was saying that while the waiting list, the RTT waiting list was a problem, you know, over 7 million people, at least we knew what was happening with those people. Whereas a lot of the uh, the unmet need is is where the real problems are. Mm. And Without meanwhile, to be too much of a demonger, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think you know I think you can be a demonger in this situation. Yeah, so, yeah, not not too much yeah. to be positive about. Although no. this sort of slight note of sort of I'm sort of clutching at straws here for positivity, but both the BMA and the government have said that they're willing, I believe, willing to sit down with um, ACAS and who, who might be able to facilitate some sort of discussion. So that might be the first step towards something productive. I know trust leaders are calling out for them to to get to get together again and talk because that's the only thing that's going to stop these strikes and they're only going to get worse, really, aren't they? Yeah. Agreed. All right. Thanks, James. I think just quickly to to round out the podcast this week, we um, are just going to talk about some of the um, NHS data that came out this week on 12 hour waits. It's sort of, you know, kind of carrying through, really, I suppose, that that theme of um, delays and, you know, patient harm, of course, as well. But as I said in my intro, James, this is uh, the first time this data has seen the light of day. Um, Yeah, this. So. 12-hour trolley weights, you will have seen these reported for years. So what's new about these ones? Well, the 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 measure as used by NHS England before today has always been, the public measure anyway, has always been that they measure the 12-hour the delay from a decision to admit rather than when the patient arrives in the emergency department. Now, the four-hour clock has always started when the patient arrives in the emergency department. So it's always been uh, a bit arbitrary and a bit strange. And it's something that the Royal College of Emergency Medicine has been campaigning on for years. I reckon the best part of a decade, they've been saying we need proper 12 hour data from when the patient arrives in the department because the current data that we've got is masking how bad the, 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 the problem is of long waits in emergency departments. And under the old measure, um, trolley weights, 12-hour delays, 12-hour breaches, peaked, hopefully, at around 55,000 this winter, a few months back. So big figure, everyone very shocked. You know, those those, those numbers used to be very low. Um, But now with the proper data, which starts from the start when the uh, patient arrives, guess what? The figure is much, much bigger. Uh, and in fact, that figure has hit 125,000, 125,505 uh, to, to be precise. And that that's 10% of people who attended um, 
accident and emergency in February, 10% of their, their 1.2 million attendees and 125,000 were delayed for 12 hours or more. It's, it, it's, it's an absolutely staggering figure and it really shows you quite yeah how, how deep the problems are. Now NHS England has has collected this data for many years so so it's seeing the light of day now but it's so it's relatively robust data it's it's gone through quite a lot of internal checks but um, the positive side of this is that you can only kind of fix a problem when you when you have full transparency on how bad the problem is so at least now there is full transparency on on, on how bad the 12 hour uh, the, the, the 12 hour data is but the downside to that is it's very, very bad. Although all that said, we knew this already. It's just it's it's putting numbers around the problem. You know, no one uh, in in the country probably needs to be told that long waits at A and E are a problem. This, this has been an issue for a very long time. Mm. But this yeah helps kind of quantify the problem. Mm. And I guess NHS England have been under pressure to publish this data. Um, is that the outcome of this pressure, I suppose, this publication? Yeah, 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 I guess so. I mean, the there's there's been a lot of media pressure. Uh the independent actually got some uh, some some good leaks on on the data um a few months back. And the yeah, like I say, uh hats off to the Royal College of Emergency Medicine because they have they've been infatigable in their uh desire to uh, get this data published and um yeah sort of best part of 10 years of hard work for them. Mm. I quite liked how the RCM president, um, sorry, RCM president Adrian Boyle said it was a more patient-centred metric. I thought that was quite a good way of sort of putting it really because it yeah. kind of shows the experience of people waiting for so, so long, you know, waiting for bed. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely um, seems a much more sensible way of doing things. All right. Thanks very much, both of you. I think now is a, is a good point to wrap up the podcast for this week. Um, but just a reminder to listeners, our podcast is available every week on the HSJ website and across all main podcast channels where you can also subscribe. And don't forget to get in touch with us if there's something you'd like to see us cover or if you have a question for our team. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>